Well, good morning, everyone, and um, welcome to church. If you're visiting us this morning, um, my name is Brendan, and uh, I'm a pastoral intern in this church. It's my it's my privilege to be opening up God's Word to us this morning, and um, you might not be aware that we're in the midst of a series in Isaiah, actually on the back end of a series in Isaiah now, and um, so we'll be looking at Isaiah 44. Last week, in fact, you can open up your Bibles to Isaiah 44 uh, if you have a Bible with you. Last week, we were looking at Isaiah 40, and Dave, I thought, preached a great sermon looking at God's greatness and how God's greatness in its fullness, brings us comfort. Uh, This week, we'll be looking at Isaiah 44, but we're not just staying in Isaiah 44. We're looking at the issue of jealousy, God's jealousy, that is, and we're going to be looking at what Isaiah as a whole book has to say about God's jealousy and looking at the breadth of jealousy in the book and then really coming back to hone on, uh, down on Isaiah 44 and see how that might speak to us. So a little bit different this morning. Open up your Bibles to Isaiah 44. I'm going to read from verse 9. Isaiah 44, 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in the house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. 
and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. And we ask this morning for a revelation from you. Lord, reveal yourself to us as the God of passionate love for his people. Lord, we want to see you rightly again this morning. We want to see you for who you are. And so we pray that you would send your spirit amongst us this morning, helping us as we read your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, jealousy is what we'll be talking about this morning. Jealousy. It's one of the most powerful of all human emotions. In fact, one of the most famous stories about this feeling of jealousy, this emotion of jealousy and its destructive power is Shakespeare's Othello. In Shakespeare's Othello, uh, Othello is an African ge- uh, general in the Venetian army who has a trusted soldier with him, Iago. And Iago is hell-bent on destroying his master, Othello. And he conspires to do this by making Othello jealous for his soldier, his lieutenant, Cassio, who he attempts to convince that Cassio is, in fact, sleeping with his wife, Desdemona. And he convinces him on some really, some pretty flimsy evidence. Um, he says that, that Cassio often at night uh, speaks of Desdemona and his love for her, trying to sleep-kiss Iago uh, in his dreams. But just the thought of Cassio wanting to kiss his wife is enough to flip Othello. And in those famous lines, he says, Othello says, Damn her, lewd minx. Oh, damn her. Come, go with me apart. I will withdraw to furnish me with some swift means of death for the fair devil. Just the thought is enough to stir jealousy in this man. But jealousy can be destructive in its power, and yet jealousy is, is something that we've all experienced, isn't it? It's not just the fellow, it's not just on TV, it's something that we experience. I mean, this week I was thinking about when I was uh, in primary school, actually, and uh, I, I really wanted to be the school captain. Like, I really wanted to be the school captain. And uh, I was so set on becoming a school captain that what I did is I actually went around to all the other potential candidates to try and convince them why being a school captain was a bad idea. And I, in fact, I succeeded in becoming not school captain but vice captain. Um, So, of course, I was jealous of the, the man who became school captain. But jealousy, wanting something that's not ours to have. In us, jealousy, it's a sin. It's coveting. And, and it, can, it can, can be aroused in so many different ways for so many different things. For us, it can be looking on at others and wanting it. Their house, their career, their marriage, that relationship. 
Our jealousy is sinful, but God's is its so completely other. Our jealousy is envy, or as Thomas Aquinas says, sorrow for another man's good. But God's is so different, not at all like ours. Absolutely other. This morning we're going to meet a God who is jealous, but not jealous in the same way that we are. This message is entitled, Behold Your Redeemer in His Jealousy. And we've got real three points. The God who is jealous, the idols that are nothing, the people who are His. But one real take-home message, one nail that we're just going to be repeatedly hammering on this morning, which is, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you've come from, regardless of what you've done, there is a God who is jealous for you. Regardless of your life, regardless of who you are, where you've come from, what you've done, there is a God who is is jealous for you. Well, Let's turn to our first point, the God who is jealous. As, as we begin this message, I just really want us to get a big picture look at what it means that God is a jealous God in Isaiah. And to do that, I'm going to start by reading from the very beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. This is, this is God addressing his people before the exile. This is Judah before the exile. God says, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. It's, it's, it's powerful language, it's strong language. God's people have become a whore. They've become prostitutes, like an unfaithful wife. Now God, throughout the book of Isaiah, is described as not only being an anguished father, but also like a husband. Like a husband with an unfaithful wife. This, friends, it's the the language of idolatry of spiritual unfaithfulness. And the truth is that idolatry, it incites God's jealousy. It stirs up his jealousy. In Exodus chapter 20, at the giving of the Ten Commandments, we read this, and and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, have no other gods before me, just me, 
It's his very first instruction to his people. Why? Verse 5. I'm a jealous God. Idolatry incites God's jealousy. But the truth is, his people are adulterous. In Isaiah, we see this picture of a people who are, who are spiritually, they're unfaithful, they're sleazy, they're adulterous. And it's not just before the exile that they're this way, it's afterwards as well. Turn with me uh, to Isaiah chapter 57, right at the end of the book. I want to read you a passage. Here, Isaiah is shifting his, his focus from, from before the exile to after the exile, when the people of God have returned back to Jerusalem. And this was really a time of great tension for God's people, great conflict for them as they came back and were faced with the people who now lived in their homeland, a people who were of mixed race, a people who had a different religion and worshipped many other gods. Read with me Isaiah 57, verse 3. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Who are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. God says to his people after the exile, when they've returned home, he says, unfaithful children, illegitimate children is what he calls them. Why? Because they mock God. They stick out their tongues at him. They burn with lust and they worship the Ammonite god Molech. The Ammonite god Molech uh, was appeased by child sacrifice. And so God speaks to his people at a time when they would sacrifice their children to please this God. And because of the shame that they feel, they hide their faces from him. They hide under rocks as they kill their children. God says. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 7. On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. They set up their beds on mountains. You know, here God is comparing their altars, these false altars that they've made with, made with, with offering themselves for sex. That's how God sees it. They journeyed to the king, to, or in Hebrew, Melech. This is a play on words with Molech, the God we mentioned before. Making offerings to another God. It's the language of seduction. It's the language of immorality. It's adultery. And to a jealous God, unfaithfulness, idolatry is like adultery. 
You know, I haven't personally experienced adultery, but I've witnessed the effects of it. And it is a devastating sin. You know, the effects it can have on a person, the anguish, the pain, the brokenness, the bitterness. If a partner who'd been cheated on didn't care, if when a spouse discovered that their spouse had been unfaithful, they just shrugged their shoulders and said, so what? There'd almost be something wrong with that, wouldn't there? It's the same with God. God describes himself as a broken-hearted lover. Because he loves his people, when he sees them being unfaithful to him, his heart is filled with passion for them and he wants them back. And so read with me, verse 11 says, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to the heart? God says to his people, why have you lied to me? Why have you forsaken me? God is a broken-hearted lover. His people have forsaken him, committed adultery on him. And so God's jealousy is an expression of his love. God, God pleads for his people not to destroy themselves. In chapter 65, right at the end of the book, we hear God say, he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I, sp- I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. God pleads with his people to turn back. He says, come back to me. He stands with with arms open and it says, here I am, come back to me. Here I am. God is jealous. By that I mean he is full of passionate love for his people. You know, Michael Horton, I think, explains it excellently in his definition of jealousy. He says, of God's jealousy. In us, jealousy is a form of coveting, claiming that which is not ours. In God, jealousy is a form of protecting, guarding that which is precious to God, both his character and his covenant people. For us, jealousy, it means wanting things that are not ours or we don't have a right to. Claiming that which is not ours. It means hoarding our possessions. It means relationships. It means power, influence, people. For us, jealousy is a form of idolatry. But for God, a God who owns everything, his jealousy is far different as though he had something that was not his to have. Now, God's jealousy is different. God's jealousy is protecting that which is precious to him, particularly his name and his people. Well, our God is a jealous God, meaning that he's passionate, passionate about what he cares about, namely his name and his people, point one. Well, let's move on, point two, the idols that are nothing. 
Well, it's not just that God is passionate about his name and, and his people, but, but also that, that worshipping anything other than him is, is destructive. And so I just wanted to move now to, to look at idolatry back in Isaiah and, in fact, our passage. Uh, previously, we'd seen how in the book of Isaiah from chapters 1 through to 39, we're really talking about God's judgment upon his people in the form of Assyria and, in the end, over the whole of the earth. And then in chapter 40, we, we really shift in tune as we move to God explaining about himself and how that's a wonderful source of comfort. It's a message of hope and comfort. And in Isaiah 44, we really continue on in that line. Uh, Read with me in Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to read from uh, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and and what will happen. God says, I'm the only God. Let someone else tell me what will happen in the future. To all the gods out there, show yourself. Who is like me? There is no one. I am the only one. That's what God says. Well, let's keep reading on to to the passage we read earlier. God says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The idols, they're nothing. They are no god. They're made by humans. They're made by people and God says, get all their makers, gather them together. Let them show themselves for who they are. They're no one. And he goes on to talk about the ironsmith who who heats metal over coals to make an idol. And yet himself, because he's just a man, he, he hungers and he thirsts and he grows faint. He talks about the carpenter who who grows a tall tree and cuts it down and and with half of it, he burns it and warms himself and, and cooks his food on it. With another half of it, he carves it out into an idol and, and says, save me. Or keep reading. Verse 19. He says, No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I bow down before a block of wood? And God says, doesn't anyone else see this? Doesn't anyone else see how stupid this is? That you would 
warm yourself and eat and cook with a piece of wood and with another bit of the very same piece, you would call it your God and cry out to it for salvation. Doesn't, one, doesn't anyone else see this as folly? You know what? We, we may look at this picture of idolatry here in Isaiah and think to ourselves, well, of course it's foolish, Brennan. You know, of course it's stupid. But, but, but I don't have any idols in my life. I don't have any images or statues or anything of the sort that I, that I bow down to. Yeah, that, that's stupid, but there's no idols for me. Well, let's keep reading verse 20. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie? In my right hand. Now according to Isaiah, more, according to God, idolatry is not just stupid. It's also deceitful. It's deceitful. God says in this passage, no one, not even one, stops to ask, am I believing a lie? Not just stupid, but deceitful, a lie of the devil. Friends, you you may not believe that there are idols in your life because you are deceived. You have believed in a lie. Well, what is an idol? I think Tim Keller puts it so helpfully. He says... In his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. He goes on, A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. Don't I know it? When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Brian Rosner, in his book, Greed as Idolatry, puts it this way. He says, idols are things we love, trust, or obey more than God. Friends, anything we look to and say, if I just had that, I would be satisfied. 
I would be secure. My life would have meaning. That, my friends, is idolatry. My point is, we still have idols to this day. And friends, they're equally as foolish. We worship houses. We worship bricks and mortar around a wooden frame in exchange for the maker of heaven and earth. Relationships. We worship people of flesh and blood, people made by God himself in exchange for the maker of men, the the one who holds the oceans in his palm, the nations who are just a, a drop in a bucket to him. We worship education, three years of study and a piece of paper in exchange for the infinitely wise, the all-knowing ruler, the one who knows all things. We worship career, money, and the respect of a handful of people for a handful of years in exchange for the Lord of hosts, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all of history who is coming again. Friends, idols are nothing. And worship of idols is therefore foolish. Well, my second point, the idols that are nothing. Third point, the people who are his. What is God's response to our idolatry? The answer is he is jealous. Well, why is he jealous? Why why is he jealous? Well, there's two reasons. We've touched on them before. The first is to protect his name. Uh, Isaiah 48, verse 11, God says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You know, when God uh, says that he wants to protect his name, it's not because God is arrogant. It's not because God is arrogant at all. It's because God, his character, is the only one who is true is the only one who is good, is the only one through whom salvation is to be known. And so when God's name is rightly known in the earth, well, the earth is blessed. The whole earth is blessed to know God rightly. And so God is is jealous for his name. He's passionate about protecting his name. But not only protecting his name, to protect his people. Read with me verse 21 of chapter 44. Isaiah 44, 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. For you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. To a people who are who will go into captivity, who will face many other gods. God says to his people, remember all this. Remember that idols are nothing. Remember that I'm the only one. And twice he says, you are my servant. You are my servant. You are mine, he says. You are my people. A servant is... It's probably even better translated subject. 
You're my possession. You, you, you sit underneath me. But you are mine. You will not be forgotten by me, he says. This God, he loves his people so much. He says, you remember when you go into exile. I will not forget. You remember. This is a God that passionately loves his people. He loves them so much. Read verse 22. He says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your, your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. He loves his people. He loves his, his people so much. He's blotted out their sins. He's paid their ransom price. God sees his people, who he loves so much, betraying him. Betraying him for idols. And he is, he is jealous. Why? Well, the idols won't satisfy them. In Isaiah 55, we've, we've read this passage before, but God says, says to his people, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. God is jealous for his people because he sees them pursuing things that, that, that will not satisfy them. He, he sees them pursuing things that he knows will not satisfy them but will destroy them. Friends, I... I just, I just want to, I, I want to address us this morning more. I, I believe God wants to address you this morning. If you are, if you are loving, if you are trusting, if you are obeying something above God, hoping that it will satisfy you, that longing you have in your heart, you will never be satisfied. No, you will never be satisfied more. You will destroy yourself. You will pour all your energy into serving that idol and you will reap destruction. If your idol is your marriage, you will become so exacting and jealous or constantly disappointed that you will destroy your marriage. If your idol is your kids, you will either burden them with your expectations or spoil them and destroy them by fanning into flame their own idols and giving them everything they desire. If it's your career, you will burn other relationships in pursuit of it or when it comes to the day you retire, you will be devastated. Friends, I saw this just this week. A patient of mine, many of you know, I work uh, in a hospital in the city at St. Vincent's. A patient of mine was a world-famous surgeon. World-famous, world world-renowned, a successful career like few other surgeons. But when it came to the day he retired, his life fell apart 
because he could not face existence, his existence, without his career, without his idol. And he plummeted down into the deepest of depression. Well, God can't sit by and let us destroy ourselves. No, he won't. He is a God of passionate love. And just like a dad who sees his children doing something destructive, can't sit by and let his child destroy itself, so too with God, he intervenes and does whatever he can in his power to remove the harm. He, he, he doesn't just give us what we want because what we want will never satisfy us. Just like a child who wants so many things, if you, if you gave everything that child wanted to it, it would, it would probably destroy itself through, by, the, by, by halfway through the day. So it is with God. He can't allow us to destroy ourselves because he loves us too much. And so God's response, it's not like our jealousy. No, it's far different. He sees the folly. He sees the destruction that it causes. He loves his kids. He's jealous. He wants to protect the ones he cares about. But in his jealousy, rather than take, he gives himself. Isn't it amazing? This, friends, is the gospel. The God who is jealous, but in his jealousy gives himself. You know, he will not be put off by our rejection of him. No, he won't. He will not be put off by our idolatry, by our sin, by our spite of him. He will not. He says, or Paul writes in Romans 5, 6, he says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? You know, this week I was thinking about how hard I find it to love other people when it costs me. In just the smallest cost. And I find it so hard. But if someone hates me, I find it to be nearly impossible. And yet the picture of God that we see is when we hated him. He loved us with a greater love than the world has ever seen. Isn't that amazing? That he sent his only son to die in our place. Such was his jealousy. Such was his passion to protect his people. Isn't that beautiful? Well, how do we respond to the God who is, who is jealous? Well, for Christians, let's reaffirm Christ as our King. And ask the Holy Spirit, I think, to reveal any idols or things we might have that are, that are displeasing him. For Christians, for, for us, let's say to God, take my life and let it be. If God is jealous 
if God is in passionate pursuit of us, if God is the jealous God who is passionate to protect us and love us, to give more of himself to us, if that is God's nature, let us say to God, let it be, take my life, let it be all for thee. And equally so, I think, for those of us who just sitting here this morning, you know that, you know that in your heart of hearts that that you've been holding something back. That you haven't said to God, I want to make you my Lord and King. You haven't given yourself to become a Christian. How do you respond to a jealous God? Well, my friend, your response to a God who is jealous is just the same. Take my life and let it be. You know, if that's you, I would love to pray with you after the service. Um, I'd love to help you to know about how you can do that. The message of the gospel is that Christ paid our sins in full on that cross and that for all who repent and believe in him, there is eternal life. So we would love to come with you and, and pray with you. Don't be embarrassed. That would be a great joy to us. But for the rest of us, may we know this morning that regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're from, regardless of what you've done, there is a God who is jealous for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are a passionate God. You are a loving God. So full of passion to protect the ones you love that you would not sit by and let us destroy ourselves Lord no you wouldn't you sent Christ in our place at the right time to die for us why we were still sinners Lord Lord I pray for us as a church Lord Lord by the power of your spirit help us to surrender all to you Lord help us to give our lives to you if you be a jealous God we want to give it all to you Lord help us We need your help. And may your jealousy, Lord, your passion for your name and your people, Lord, may that be our passion as well, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.